This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Nuking the Moon. 2018 Movie Top Tens. And Occult Jazz Age New York. Cards and Commissars is a clever card game of glorious robot revolution where players control the means of production. It's from Atlas Games, the publisher of hits like Gloom and Once Upon a Time. The standard edition of Cards and Commissars is in stores now, but there are also a limited number of deluxe editions left over from the Kickstarter. This most equal apparatchik edition features wood screen-printed citizen tokens, neoprene mats for each faction leader, and a foil-stamped spot-gloss magnetic closure box. The deluxe edition is only available direct from Atlas Games while supplies last. If you like feeling smart, take that gameplay, awesome card combos, or satirical Soviet robots, Cogs and Commissars is a game you need to buy immediately. To order, visit atlas-games.com slash cogsdeluxe. Or follow the link in the show notes. As Lennon once said, the capitalist will sell you the rope you use to hang him in the form of a beautiful collector's edition board game. For the motherboard! The thump of dice, the rattle of our tactical map, the uh, worried look on Peter Frampton's face, and the this time uh, period-accurate shag-carpeted confines tell us we're once more in the gaming hut. And this time we're here at the behest, the command, veritably, by Patreon backer Ray Slitkinski, who asks, How can we game Moon Nuking Project A119 in Fall of Delta Green. Uh, Ken, you are an expert both on Fall of Delta Green and blowing up uh, lunar surfaces. It's so true. I guess uh, you're going to tell us, first of all, about this... Uh, and I think Project is going a little far in that there were a number... Of, I, I think it was a series of meetings... <laughs> And at the end no, of the well, there meeting, was a report. There were reports generated by it. There so were reports? There were reports. It, it's, a, it's a report that makes a project? Well, you know, you would have to ask the um, uh, good people at the United States Air Force whether or not it makes it a project or not. Right. Or but we possibly, spiral into semantics. At any rate, exactly. there was a series of meetings. At the end, somebody put up his hand and went, uh, guys? Uh, but before that, 1958, take us back. All right. Like all great ideas in Ray nuclear explosions, this one came out of the great city of Chicago and out of the United States Air Force, which are two great tastes that taste great together. The Armor Research Foundation, which uh, is a think tank and research group uh, based at the Illinois Institute of Technology, right uh, up the road from me. It, this And uh, the ARF has changed the name to ITRI now, so if you're going to look for it to shake your palsied fists at them for not blowing up the moon, uh, that's where you go. But they are a classic government, uh, sort of a, a ARPA before there was ARPA, um, burying things deep in the military industrial complex type thing. And if someone wants the moon, re- uh, nuking the moon researched, they call good people at the Armor Research Foundation. And the theory, I suppose, if one can call it a theory, is that if you set off a hydrogen bomb on the moon, it'll show those Soviets what for and give America a much needed shot in the arm <laughs> after the embarrassment of Sputnik. 
and uh, Yuri Gagarin orbiting things and such. This is really the best and most beautiful part of this story is that the at least the people in the room were all like, initially, you know what America needs? A shot in the arm, a big explosion on the moon that we set off. That'll make everybody feel, uh, feel super great. Right. It's, it's, it's a, it's a lifetime, it's a lifelong dream. Centuries have dreamed of blowing up the moon, but only, uh, the U.S. Air Force wanted to do anything about it. Right. So the explosion had to be visible. Yeah. From, from Earth. So I guess it would have been, in the alternate, if this was Ken's time machine, you would explain how you would, caused this explosion on the moon and described all of the, you know, fanfare and, and, and lead him up to it. So the, the leader of the project is a guy named Leonard Reifel, uh, yeah. and, uh, Gerard, uh, Cooper, who I guess is the, uh, namesake of the Cooper belt and uh-huh. his then assistant, Carl Sagan, uh, were involved in this. And, and Sagan's job was to do the math to make sure that the, uh, moon would blow up in a sufficiently, well, not blow up. There'd be just a surface explosion and dust. Just a tiny moon. bit of the moon uh, at first. The, 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 he, he was tasked with doing the math to make sure the explosion looked cool. And Carl Sagan was also the weak link because in his papers, he gave the name of the report, possible contribution of lunar nuclear weapons detonation to the solution of some problems in planetary astronomy, <laughs> which... Oh my God. If I had that on my CV, I would never shut, shut up about it. So I, I guess I can't blame Carl for uh, going off the reservation, but of course no one pays attention to anything scientists say. And it wasn't until someone was writing a biography of Carl Sagan that they said, what's this paper about blowing up the moon? And they dug into it and Leonard Reifel, I don't know how plausible it is for the guy who helped Enrico Fermi build the first cyclotron to say, I was against it from the start. <laughs> me and all the Nazi scientists I had working for me were all against blowing up the moon, but that's what he said. I, I had to head this project to make sure it would never happen. Would never happen. I it, I worked from the inside. I was yeah. a mole. I think I've done that on some panels. Yes. he um, uh, uh, And in fairness, it didn't happen. So who's to say that he was wrong? But the uh, larger point is that Carl Sagan was the weak link, but no one paid any attention because operating security is a terrible thing. Now, at the time, there was a contemporary news paper rumor, which I just smell the lovely hand of the Air Force Office of Public Information, which is so such it's my one of my favorite military industrial uh, organizations from inventing majestic to so many other things. But a contemporary report that the Soviets, the dirty Soviets, were planning to blow up the moon to mark uh, the anniversary of the uh, October Revolution. And they were going to blow it up during a lunar eclipse in uh, November of 1957. And there, everyone was worried about it in the papers. A little nine days wonder. And, of course, the Soviets had no plans to do that in 1957. But it's circa 1958, or right about when Carl Sagan lets the title of the paper slip, the Soviets start their own blow up the moon program and like us decide that would be very hard. It would produce literally nothing of value. If you want to get anybody in the cold war, your enemy to do something stupid announce that you're doing it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it is. It well, it, 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 it works when it doesn't. I yeah. mean, that's the beautiful thing about it. Uh, Edward Teller, who never met a hydrogen bomb. He didn't like suggested the hydrogen bomb and came up with a lot of uh, fun things you could do with blowing up the moon, such as a uh, seismological exploration. You could find out what the moon's made of. Uh, you could hit it like a, that, uh, H-bomb explosion would hit it like a bell, and if it rang, you could sort of judge the moon's density and composition. 
in ways that you couldn't do without doing it. And I point out that NASA, in the uh, weak and contemptible 21st century, dropped mere high explosive on the moon to try the same thing, but it wasn't enough, so they didn't really find anything useful out. Take that, NASA. And America's morale was not restored. That, yes, uh, we, we did not see an uprush of American pride in 2009 when we dropped a bomb on the moon. Because they did it wrong. Anyway, the um, Taylor wanted a hydrogen bomb. The Air Force said, we don't have a rocket that can get to the moon carrying a hydrogen bomb. How about this other rocket? And uh, they thought that they could put it on basically a big ICBM and launch it up and whack the moon with it if it was a little tiny uh, uh, 1.7 kiloton bomb, barely even a nuclear weapon, Robin. Just a little kiss of a nuclear weapon. A, a scooch of a nuke. A scooch of a nuke. To me, I think the real buried lead here is not whether or not the moon deserved to be blown up and whether or not it was asking for it, but... We had a rocket that we thought could launch a nuclear weapon to the moon in 1959? That's terrific! That's amazing! But no, no one cares about that. No one cares about the poor Air Force people trying to get the the moon to pay for its crimes. Uh, everyone's all mad at other stuff. So anyway, that's what didn't happen, according to uh, the cover story. Right, and because, I guess, of course, a, a project that is uh, mooted, and we know a little bit about but it was then officially closed down and didn't exist... And hmm. all the other reports were destroyed in the 80s. Yeah. Hmm. Does this have <laughs> any resonance for Fall of Delta Green? Does it? I think that, um, yes, I think it does. I think that you can very much make this not the capper of a revelation, but I think this is a big, uh, I'm a big believer, uh, to jump out to theory real fast in horror games, especially, but in all games of, Moments where you expand the scope, where the players realize that the question is a little bigger than they thought it was. And I'm not saying everything has to be save the world, whatever. It's just that if you think you're chasing down some sort of corruption in the Air Force and you turn a corner and, oh, yeah, we nuked the moon, that's a moment where you realize it's a bigger situation. You're in it deeper than you thought you were. And people who will nuke the moon probably won't stop at murdering you and hiding your paperwork. And and so I think that you could reveal uh, that indeed, yes, 1959, there was a successful launch of a W-25 warhead on an experimental ICBM that hit the dark side of the moon, not the Terminator, so that no one could see it, and that it was a launch against X, against whatever mythos uh, figure you want to put on the moon. Canonically, according to Lovecraft, the Mego have bases on the dark side of the moon. So I think it would make a fine thing for one member of Majestic maybe to have done on their own hook or Delta Green to have done in the earliest stages of their throwdown with Majestic where they're sort of settling out their boundaries and Delta Green just sort of does an unlicensed nuclear weapons launch. And then that's the reason that they're helpless to prevent Majestic from taking over the whole program, because every time they try to do something, Majestic says, you launched a nuclear weapon without presidential <laughs> authorization. How's that going to look when we go squealing to uh, Robert McNamara? And then everyone will have to stand down and let Majestic do something evil. It is hard to explain after you've done it. Yeah. I mean, even if the guy's cleared for Mego, you still have to explain that you stole a nuke, an experimental rocket, and then nuked the moon without asking anyone. 
Yeah, uh, so you, I think that you said you wanted of, plausible deniability, not this much deniability. And I, we didn't want to deny that. I, I mean, we did, but you know what I mean. Yeah. But I, I think that that makes a fun. I don't know that there's a lot to make it a thing that the characters are doing, unless maybe they're trying to figure out how to do it again because the first moon nuking didn't take, and the Migo or the whatever it is on the backside of the moon is still lurking around causing trouble. Well, if you want to make it the the centerpiece of a scenario rather than the backstory, someone mm-hmm. has revived the plan, which was not actually put into effect, but it was much further along than uh, is admitted. And there's somebody in 1968 who's going to nuke the moon, mm-hmm. and that that is bad, because it's going to be, you know, much more than a, a cloud of dust. And uh, so it could be the Migo themselves, are, uh, or, you know, some other mythos entity. If there's Migo on the moon, they're shooting at it. Or it could be uh, moon beasts, right? They're, they're you know, right. the, the titular yeah. moon beasts, and it could be that uh, the problem with the moon is that with all this Age of Aquarius stuff happening, that all of a sudden the Dreamlands moon and the actual Waking World moon are becoming uh, coterminous. And, uh, of course, for operational security, you want to shut down every possible portal to the Dreamlands, and especially one that could send, you know, a legion of uh, moon beasts unencumbered by space cats uh, toward Earth. So it could be... You could be trying to stop a, a shot at the moon that is going to... Uh, uh, do hideous damage and and leave fallout in the moon and possibly have fallout drift to earth which was another reason why they decided not to do that yeah because they they didn't and they were worried that when we built our moon cities as we were certainly going to be doing in the 1970s we wouldn't want to have knocked out valuable moon real estate with fallout right but at any rate either we're trying to shut the uh portal to the dreamlands on the moon which requires us, the player characters, to uh, steal this rocket, which is conveniently still on a launch pad somewhere, or we're trying to stop somebody else from from launching the rocket. So it's sort of a, uh, you find out that this researching the 58 thing is part of the backstory, but you can actually have a, a rocket on stage. I think that one of the things that you can make it even more fun is you stumble on the 58 project, you find the rocket, you find the thing, you find out that there is an ongoing, you know, Project A119A or A120 or whatever that's going to launch. And you also know about this problem with the moon beasts opening their gates on the moon and, and pouring in and you've had dreams and you can, you can follow cats around and have bast activity on the city. And the question is, will launching shut down the moon beasts gate or blow it wide open? And you don't know. And you have to sort of figure out the guys behind project A120 or A119A. Are they? good Delta Green or good Majestic or are they bad Delta Green or bad Majestic? Are they uh, working for uh, the Brotherhood of the Yellow Sign uh, and they're secretly going to redirect it and blow up the Migo base, which is maybe helpful but totally irrelevant. Or maybe they're working for the Migo and they're just trying to take out the Moon Beast's infestation so the Migo can come through that gate more conveniently than flying down on their wings. And you have to sort of suss out is it good or bad to blow up the moon and make that a, a genuine discussion that the players have to have based on very incomplete knowledge? Meanwhile, you know, uh, T minus the, the, the launch is, you know, H hour is coming up, coming up, coming up and you have to make a decision. And maybe one of the things that ha- that you have that's a tempting possibility is there's a pre gate that has been established to the moon by sorcerers in the pay of the moon beasts or in league with the moon beasts. And you can, yeah, you can get spacesuits from NASA and use your government credentials and walk through the gate and be on the frickin' moon in 1968 before Neil Armstrong as a way of finding out whether or not nuking the moon, which might happen while you're on it, by the way, 
is uh, going to be a wise thing or, a, or, a, or an unwise thing. And maybe the only way to know is to go to the moon yourself and, uh, and get ground intel on this, on this gate. And, and that is one of the big crises. So not only do you have a rocket on stage, you are on, some of you maybe are on the moon, maybe half the party's on the moon. The other half is in uh, Alabama at the Huntsville launch center saying, uh, do we go? Do we not go? Do we go? Do we not go? And then waiting the eight seconds or however long the delay is for the message to get there from the moon. Right. I, I think that's great fun. Um, that is why the astronauts took golf clubs to the moon in case there was still a straight yeah. moon beast that wanted, needed clubbing. The more I'm envisioning this, the more I'm thinking I have to structure this so that the players are deciding whether they shoot a rocket at the moon because that scene where they have to decide based on contradictory evidence, do we nuke the moon or not? Uh, I think is uh, just an irresistible bit of interplayer interaction that uh, I, that I <laughs> have to. You'll, you'll have to save it for when one of your players is out of the room, I suspect. Oh, because they're the ones <laughs> who get sent or. Oh, no, because they're the ones that are going to dive and, and, and hit the red button while everyone's having a conversation. Oh, right. Of course. Yes. You can't. Yes. Because inevitably that's sort of like, you know, check off nuke rocket in, in act right. one. Someone's going to hit the nuke rocket. So you have to make sure that the uh, structure it so that the, Results of the hour of discussion don't just get invalidated by the one player who always does the crazy thing. Mm-hmm. Well, now that I think we're uh, well, we're fully envisioning this, I think it's time for us to get on a rocket, but not a moon nuking rocket, no. but rather a take us to the next segment rocket, a rocket that brings peace and love to all mankind. Exactly that kind of rocket, or at least a commercial. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? The whir of the projector, the coils of smoke lazily pouring up through the lambent beams, the smell of popcorn, and the comfortable center seats welcome us into an Oscar-winning edition of The Cinema Hut. Uh, or maybe not an Oscar-winning edition. Maybe we will turn our back on the Academy, as so often we do, when we list our top ten films of 2018. Uh, Robin, we got we got top ten films of 2018, you and me. Yes. 
Uh, so, uh, usual provisos and disclaimers. If you watch a lot of films, uh, uh, this continues to be a really solid era for uh, movie going. So, uh, as always, this is very difficult. There's a lot of apple and orange comparison. Uh, I could, if the top 10 films on my list had not been released, the top 11 to 20 films could very easily come up and take their place and be a perfectly respectable top 10 list. Yeah, I would, I would not be super sad about, uh, missing that. And if, uh, I only watched English language films, I would have a perfectly great top 10. I would have a perfectly great, I think, top 20. And, uh, and as always, this is not the list of most exemplary moral films taken as fables because. Oh, goodness, uh, no. I do not uh, regard agreeing with my politics as, uh, an aesthetic achievement as opposed to a coincidence. And, uh, so, uh, that starts us, uh, off, however, with, uh, something that is, uh, uh, very affirming and exciting and that people loved and that I'm the only reservation I have about putting it at 10 is that I saw it in February. It is uh, Black Panther by Ryan Coogler and uh, I haven't rewatched it. And in a way, sort of the, because a big chunk of uh, Avengers uh, Infinity War also happens in Wakanda, I sort of feel like maybe I'm holding that vastly inferior film against Black Panther, and they've mushed together right. my memories the way all these Marvel movies do. So maybe this should be higher on my list, but making lists is hard. Uh, but it's yeah. a fun, delirious movie that, in addition to its obvious uh, charms of representation, changes from one genre to another in an exciting Quicksilver way. It has the final confrontation is actually uh, dramatically engaging and is... Uh, uh, less of that CGI characters fight each other. The world it creates is, is evocative and it sort of breathes a new life and excitement and drama, uh, into, uh, a, uh, cinematic universe that, uh, needs a jolt of that every so often. So, yeah. uh, getting those right is, is, uh, very difficult and, uh, Black Panther definitely gets the Marvel movies right. Yeah, I mean, Black Panther was a, was a great movie, and if we were only talking English-language movies, it would be my number 10 as well. I dinged it for the very weak and boring score, and for Martin Freeman, who I thought contributed very little to the plot, except to sort of remind us that without the CIA, you can't keep an absolute monarch in power, <laughs> which, you know, hey, go, go you, Marvel. But, uh, yeah, that is not my number 10. My number 10 is uh, They Shall Not Grow Old, a documentary uh, directed and produced by Peter Jackson about the British Tommy in the lines in World War One, And I think that a lot of what I'm awarding my tenness here to, first of all, the technical achievement. It is just amazing to see, and I saw the documentary that Peter Jackson made after it, that played in the theater right after that uh, showing, about how they took the footage from the Imperial War Museum and... Uh, sped it up or slowed it down to be uh, 24 frames per second, colorized it, did all the sound looping, did all the other technical work that was needed to do, sharpened the images, and really took a film that by its nature is remote and kind of inhuman and foreign to us and made it a, a film that one or two trenches through the Uncanny Valley aside is super relatable and human and it humanizes the Tommies, not that they necessarily needed humanizing, but it does so entirely in their image and in their words. There's no expert explaining about, you know, Germany's war aims or anything like that. It's just these guys went and they did what was at the time the worst job in the world for four years and they won 
and they came back and that's what the movie's about. And it's just an amazing, uh, immersion in their world an immersion in their life. It's a terrific documentary. And as a technical achievement, it just, it just blows me away. It, it's just an amazing thing to watch. And certainly obviously in the centennial year of, uh, of the end of world war one, it was, it was powerful on that level as well. So yeah, that's my, that's my number 10, Robin. I've not seen that one and look forward to it. My number nine is Black Klansman by Spike Lee. Uh, it's great to see a, a master of cinema back and firing all, all cylinders and doing something really formally audacious in that he takes the loopy pleasures of the undercover cop genre and then, uh, melds it to his essay film format as seen in his, uh, uh, underrated film, uh, Bamboozled. So in a way, it's sort of his, most accessible film, Inside Man, meets his most experimental film and melds in the middle very brilliantly. It is uh, his mastery of uh, cinematic style is apparent throughout, but is uh, much more uh, subtle and controlled and, and not as uh, flourishy until the end. When he goes, you know what? This is a Spike Lee movie, uh, right. which is not a spoiler. Um, and so, uh, the, uh, and of course, uh, features, uh, uh, great performances and, and, uh, that great sort of, uh, 70s, uh, style is, is harkened back to. And, uh, Terrence Blanchard's, uh, score is really great. It's amazing to think that he is up for an Oscar for the first time. That's, uh, a giant oversight. Uh, but at any rate, uh, that's a, a really, interesting film and even the way that it satisfies it calls into question so it's it's a great example of an apparent uh, genre crowd pleaser uh, disguising a, a deep experiment in filmmaking yeah I, I really liked it I mean I loved Adam Driver's performance especially I think he absolutely deserves the Oscar that he's nominated for I think Harry Belafonte uh, is Oscar worthy in it as well um, what I think that I found the tone shifting a little more obvious and therefore a little less elegant than you did. Maybe you were, didn't mind the obviousity to it, but I, I found that a, a kind of a problem when I watched it. I, I think the obviousity is part of what's interesting, but, I, but I, it, again, it's a terrific movie and uh, it, it's just jammed up in there in my movies that did not make my top 10 for one or another reason, but it is uh but it's a good movie and well worth everyone seeing. My number nine is widows, which I suspect maybe in my top 10 because it is such a good film about Chicago in addition to being a great heist film. And it is, it combines a political, uh, a sort of examination of Chicago corruption and what that means on the ground with a heist film. So when you talk about a film inside a film, this is a film inside a film and the editing, uh, the editing by Joe Walker is astonishing because at no point are you aware that you're seeing that happen because it's cut into the holes in the heist film in such a way that it is the B plot, but it's also so much more about what the film's about and just the direction, the way that Stephen Queen takes these incredible actors and he puts them in these very heightened uh, genre situations and then gets these sort of weird, but totally natural seeming readings from them, it, it's like seeing someone do, I don't even know what the, the, the equivalent would be. It's like seeing a Jacobian revenge tragedy, but done, you know, post Stanislavski. I can't even imagine what the, uh, director working with the actors. And of course the cast is just an all-star list 
all the way down. I mean, I don't even know where you go when John Bernthal is like the 11th best guy in a movie. You're, you're just, um, it's just amazing how good this movie is. Um, I've done a better job, uh, than usual of seeing all of the movies uh, worth seeing this year, but, uh, not that one. So I look forward to it. Uh, my number eight is the, uh, improbable triumph that is a star is born by uh, Bradley Cooper. Uh, this is definitely a case of a film that is first of all, using a, a uh, well-demonstrated structure that works nearly every time and uh, puts a new sense of cinematic uh, mediacy and uh, the uh, cinematography of Matthew Liebetik, I think, is uh, hugely to do with why uh, what in other hands uh, would be fairly quotidian scenes, like the scene where they're hanging out in the parking lot outside a grocery store. There's just something tense and powerful and enrapturing about the depiction of this well-known uh, love story with the reverse trajectories that uh, I uh, found uh, really remarkable. Um, it's especially exciting if you can be in a cinema seat sitting next to someone who doesn't know where the story is going. It's like, oh, you, you've <laughs> not been briefed on A Star is Born, have you? Uh, so there was someone who was profoundly surprised by uh, by where that goes. It does, I think, lose a little bit of momentum the more it go, goes finally onto the track where it has to go to be A Star is Born. But in terms of sort of uh, subtle, indefinable uh, uh, cinematic uh, vision, elevating material. It's, it's hard to think of a better example of that than a star is born. Yeah. Star is born is one of the ones that, uh, that I wanted to get to, uh, when it was, it got all the Oscars and got re-released and I thought I will get to it. And you know what? I did not get to it, but I, I do hope to, uh, going forward. My number eight by contrast is burning, uh, from South Korea and directed by Lee Chang Dong starring our buddy, Steven Yoon. Uh, who people who watch The Walking Dead know from The Walking Dead, and who you and I will now forever know as the one and only heir to the throne of the late, great George Sanders for oily but superficially clean villainy. Uh, his character in Burning is a master uh, class in never doing anything bad while never communicating anything else to the audience than you are bad. The uh, movie itself is a, is a, it's a slow boil more than it is a burn, maybe even a simmer. It's very much about atmosphere and emotion and uh, the impact of sort of the absence of truth and certainty on uh, the lives of uh, our, our main character, the sort of schlemiel uh, a main guy uh, played by Yuan In. It's very subjective in that way. It's not a thriller. People uh, who call it a thriller are wrong, which is not to say it is not a suspense movie. It is basically, if you took a suspense movie and removed all the thriller, you get burning. And if you do it in South Korea with Lee Chang Dong at the helm, you get my number eight. I'm not going to comment on that, which uh, longtime listeners will know is a tip-off. Uh, my seventh film is Mandy by Panos Cosmatos. Uh, there's some crazy films uh, on this list, but this is the uh, wildest and most uh, outrageous and most hypnotizing. And also because it is based on the exceedingly disreputable genre that is the uh, 70s uh, urban Avenger uh, movie, but goes way out into horror territory with it. Uh, it is uh, uh, definitely a case of something that uh, plays with your uh, genre expectations, for example, by 
making the uh, the character who uh, becomes the reason for the uh, Nick Cage uh, rampage of violence, uh, making that character real and dimensioned, and and what that does to you, and uh, the uh, formal crazy control of the of the film, uh, and its uh, throwback to the uh, '70s style and the the score, and just how uh, crazy it goes, and and what excellent use it makes of Nicolas Cage. Uh, is, uh, I think, uh, a great example of, uh, art exploitation at its, uh, at its finest and, and most uh, horrible and disturbing. There, there, there are no bad stars, only bad directors. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is where I would say I look forward to seeing Mandy and I didn't catch it. I'm not sure I look forward to seeing Mandy, but I'm sure I will see Mandy and I'm sure that I will, uh, maybe enjoys the wrong word too, but I'm, I'm sure that I'll be confronted with it. It will get in your mouth. I will be confronted with it. Mandy will run right up, uh, inside my mouth. Uh, we better go to the next movie. What's your right. number seven? What's my number seven? My number seven, by contrast to your crazy movie, is a lighthearted comedy called The Death of Stalin, uh, directed by Armando Iannucci, uh, with, uh, bumping comic timing and the brilliant in retrospect decision to have all the actors play the parts in their nativist accent. And so when you've heard Yorkshire voiced bully general marshal of the Soviet Union Zhukov enter a room, you can't hear anything else. Uh, I can tell you since, I mean, you read anything about world war two, you are definitely going to be hearing uh, a Yorkshire Zhukov, not the proper Zhukov. So right there, that performance alone steals the uh, scene, but there's lots of other great ones. The comic timing is amazing. It uh, paints the successors to Stalin as the odious little weasels that they were. It uh, <laughs> makes the perhaps unjustifiable historically, but very justifiable dramatically decision to play Vyacheslav Molotov of all people for sympathy. But Michael Palin rises to the to, to the role as I think really great comedians can when you give them a really meaty dramatic role because they are so used to drawing the other half of the emotion. They are great at drawing uh, the, 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 the downside of, uh, human experience as well. So Palin is the, I think, unsung anchor of that film in a lot of ways, even though Jason Isaacs is just a million times as much fun as anybody. My number six film, uh, this might be a bit of a tip off to those of you who listened to our previous segment, historical accuracy in film who needs it is the favorite by Yorgos Lanthimos. This features a, uh, stripped down version of, uh, of the, uh, story of Queen Anne, uh, to a, chamber comedy of uh power and uh and backstabbing it's uh anchored by brilliant performances from uh olivia coleman and rachel weiss and emma stone and lanthimos takes uh alfonso coron's recent uh, discovery that it's uh, really visually interesting to take a wide angle lens which you're traditionally not supposed to move at all and then pan with it and uh, he goes with a fisheye lens and goes, oh, you think that's panning with a fisheye? Look at this. And so uh, even when you look at a still from this film, it's all in a weird, uh, distorted uh, world, which is a big uh, tip off that some liberties are being uh, taken with the actual story. But uh, it's has the sort of a tread of, of boots on the stage while, uh, while being uh, completely cinematic and uh, there's uh, no uh, period film uh, quite exactly like it. It's uh it's like, uh, you know, there's a bit of Barry Lyndon in there, but it's also saying, oh, you thought Barry Lyndon was stylized? Uh, look at this. Uh, <laughs> uh, the favorite, I find a, a delight uh, throughout. Well, I could not dream of commenting on the favorite at this time. 
Instead, I will share with you my number six, which is Razi, uh, which was an Indian spy thriller starring um, uh, Alia Bhatt, who is, I think, better known to Bollywood fans as a romantic comedy lead. Uh, but she is a really good actress, as you could have told if you'd seen her in those romantic comedies. She's terrific in them. Uh, this, this camera loves her, but also she's very good. And in this one, she has to play a woman who is the daughter of a spy master, an Indian spy master, and must be married to a Pakistani general to maintain the uh, continuity of information during the 1971 border crisis that becomes the Indo-Pakistani War. Uh, so she is making the ultimate sacrifice uh, for her country. It is a patriotic movie and does that well, but it doesn't step on it. It's a spy movie and it does that amazingly well, given that India uh, does not have a great spy movie tradition, but whoever wrote this definitely paid attention. You see the establishment of a network, you see the destruction of a network and you see it with uh, the economy that whoever made spy game is right now weeping into their cups, wishing that they'd been able to do. And then the um, uh, other roles as well are, are also uh, terrifically cast. No one is, no one is a weak link. Uh, I w- want to call out Jaideep Alwat who plays uh, her handler and plays that particular role uh, with kind of a deep stoicism that you don't see very often in Indian cinema and is super effective uh, for that. Uh, and the score is incredible in that it evokes seventies. It evokes Indian music from the seventies and it evokes spy thrillers all at the same time, but in a unified score. That's by Shankar Esan Loy, whose work I'm not super familiar with, but I would look for more if I were an Indian score looker. So anyway, Razi directed by Meghna Gulzar is my number six. Number six is halfway through the list. So I think it's time for us to, uh, Sneak briefly into the lobby to uh, buy some milk duds, and uh, while we're doing that, uh, hey, here's a commercial. Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666. He discovered the way that alchemical truths That sounds can be fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Ask Fagalm by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Keep this podcast unnuked by joining such Patreon supporters as... Jeff Dean. Hyperlexic. Jason Denon. Michael Manival. And Phil Bailey. 
We're back, some of us pouring the milk duds into our popcorn in a barbarous display that is nonetheless <laughs> kind of effective. But we're back in the cinema hut, back in our center seats, back with the rattling projector, or the whirring projector even, showing us the top ten movies of 2018 as seen by Robin and myself. And uh, in this case, we are seeing the top five, because this is the second segment. So if you're somehow listening to this, rush back, listen to the other segment. Robin, tell me about your number five. Uh, this is Annihilation by Alex Garland, the uh, adaptation of the Jeff Vandermeer uh, novel, uh, the famously loose adaptation that is based on reading the book once and then remembering your feelings about it. And uh, it's uh, kind of the Lost Patrol uh, meets uh, The Thing uh, with a big chunk of uh, uh, David Cronenberg in it and uh, is uh, a compelling uh, you know, a uh, patrol team on a mission, uh, which is refreshed by having the members of the, uh, the doomed team all be played, uh, by women. So that's, uh, uh, an exciting, uh, uh, fresh, uh, twist and the sort of visual imagination of the film and it's sort of, um, horribly muted, diffuse lighting. Uh, and, uh, and then finally, uh, when you get to the, uh, the big finish that really escalates into a, Oh, is this what I'm looking at? Is this happening? Uh, basically, if you want to look at my film aesthetic in, in a nutshell, films that make me go, am I seeing this now? And, and I found, uh, Annihilation, a, a great sort of, uh, early year gem that, uh, uh, didn't get the, uh, exposure that it deserved in, uh, first run, but that doesn't matter so much anymore to the extent that it ever did really in terms of what becomes a, a cult film or not. But, uh, definitely, I think a uh, an instant classic in the uh, horror action uh, SF uh, niche. Yeah, this is Annihilation is one of those where, like you alluded to earlier, apples and oranges quality of this list is so apparent because Annihilation could easily have been my, you know, in my bottom half of my top ten just with one or two other things different. Um, I think I wound up downgrading it a little bit because uh, of the... The the promise of the movie is not maintained throughout the movie, in my opinion. Although I very much enjoyed the movie throughout, and I I think I was just mad at um, uh, miscasting Jennifer Jason Lee. I just love seeing her act so much and having her play a character who doesn't open up is it it hurt me. I think on on some level, but I loved Annihilation. It's a terrific movie. It, you know, roll the dice another another time. It could have been my number nine or my number ten. Definitely go see it. Uh, my number five. Uh, by way of contrast, is The Favorite, which you have already discussed all the great things about it, but I will reiterate the incredibly good three-handed acting duel or team up. I'm not sure which it is. The script is a, is a, is a duel, but I think the acting is more of a, of, of a cool game of catch between Olivia Coleman, Rachel Weiss, and Emma Stone, all of whom bring it. Uh, I got a little more needled by the absence of poor Queen Anne's husband than I think you did. But I guess in the end, I just like those performances so much that the favorite uh, winds up my number five. And for all the other... liking it a tick more than I did in the end. Uh, in, the, in the end, I did. And I and I think one of the things that... Um, uh, I mean, you talk about the, the production and sort of the, the high stylization of it. it. It's one of those things that when you're making the list, you go back and you think, am I still thinking about this movie a year mm -hmm. later? Am I, am I going to still think about this movie a year later? I'm never not going to think about those fisheye lenses just running through the... Um, uh, through the, the, the palace, <laughs> through hilariously Blenheim Palace, and uh, the sort of cartoonish uh, male characters throughout providing this 
beautiful uh, combination of foil and uh, scenery that they do. Just the, there's there's so much great stuff sort of in the design and not just the production design and the set design, but the sheer design of that film that I think that's what maybe just can't stop thinking about it. So it's still up there. The, the film that lingers in your memory is not necessarily always the uh, film that you uh, think you've seen when the credits uh, start. To exactly. Roll, and that's, I think a, the mark of a great film is, uh, you know, does it set up housekeeping in your brain? Mm-hmm. A film that definitely set up housekeeping in my brain is the aforementioned uh, Death of Stalin coming in at my number four. Uh, as you say, Armando Iannucci's uh, decision to uh, tackle the uh, aftermath of the downfall of uh, Stalin and the uh, downfall of uh, Beria and the ascent of uh, uh, Khrushchev are, uh, it's a brilliant idea to handle it in the same satirical mode as uh, the thick of it and Veep, uh, because those, of course, are the ultimate stakes of uh, political struggle, is uh, you can, uh, unlike the thick of it, um, you can not only uh, swear uh, extravagantly at your enemies, but arrange to have them bumped off. And I think that that is a, a brilliant example of uh, coming at a set of historical circumstances uh, from an angle that makes you see it uh, entirely afresh. And uh, as you said, they're uh, brilliant, uh, comic performances uh, where the stylization is uh, signaled by the fact that they're not all doing terrible cod Russian accents, but they are uh, all permitted to speak in their actual voices, which, of course, allows them uh, their uh, comic timing. So uh, The Death of Stalin definitely still uh, lingers with me in terms of that. That's a film where there's not a, a wasted frame in that film. It's oh, a, yeah. A, a the, the editing is so amazing in that. Just the... the, the... Cut for comedy, cut for timing. So good. It's, it's just so a, good. a marvel of, of compression. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's my number four. What's yours? My number four is Dogman, uh, directed by Matteo Garoni, who people might have seen Gamora, which was his movie about the Gamora in Naples, which was a big sprawling, uh, all these people's lives joined together in the filthy hands of the evil Gamora type movie and was a masterpiece. And it was such a big movie that when I saw Dogman, which was by him, it's a very tiny movie. It's about one guy. And that one guy is Marcello, who's a dog groomer, played by Marcello Fonte. And he's in, I think, pretty much every scene. So it's very much about this guy who is under the thumb of a of a thug named uh, Simone, his friend, quote unquote, uh, played by Eduardo Pesci, who I think is um, part Romanian. Uh, but maybe not, maybe that's just my impression from the publicity material. Anyway, uh, that's not important. The, the important thing is that it's the dynamic between them and how Marcello is the dog man. He is the pet. He is, uh, padded. He is kicked. He is abused. And then, like, you know, it's going to happen. He turns and it is the absolute simple stripped down story construction. Everything depends on the character. Everything depends on the direction. Neither of them falter for a second. It's just, you, you, I don't think you exhale during the whole movie. It's really, really good. Uh, the Italians wanted it to be nominated for the Academy Awards. They made it their official entry. The Academy, as is traditional, is terrible and did not accept it. So go see Dogman. I think it's going to get a 2019 theatrical release. Uh, so if you are paying attention to great Italian movies or great movies about brutality, Dogman is a movie to watch. Uh, and so theoretically could be on my list next year. Could be. My number three is Shoplifters, a Japanese film by uh, the uh, great master uh, Hirokaze Koreeda. Uh, it is a realistic, uh, naturalistic drama of a family uh, that is uh, both more and less than it seems. The plot turns when uh, they uh, they're 
living, uh, you know, hand to mouth on, uh, finagled, uh, welfare benefits and, uh, from the proceeds of, uh, the titular shoplifting. And, uh, the, they find that a, a little girl is being abused by her parents and they take her in and they just keep her because the parents don't seem to want her back. As the uh, narrative unfolds, I hesitate to say story because it's not a, a plot-driven film in any way. Uh, you discover much more about uh, this family and why they're together, and uh, it winds up being extremely moving in a very deft and non-manipulative manner. And it's just one of those films that is uh, beautiful throughout. It annoyed the Japanese government, which is another point in its favor. <laughs> Koreeda has been a uh, a critic of the. Uh, uh, Japanese government and uh, the, they definitely did not want to see this story of uh, down and out people falling through the cracks uh, represent uh, their uh, national film culture. But the main reason to see it is just it's a really gorgeous uh, human document. Yeah, I missed both of my chances to see that on the big screen. It was sold out at the Film Fest in Chicago. Uh, and uh, very, very early, I think the Toronto buzz had gotten there. And then it was playing at Doc Films here on campus at uh, the University of Chicago while I was in Florida. So I've missed both my chances to see it on the big screen, but I very much want to see it on, the, on whichever screen I can get to uh, sometime next year, I guess. My number three, by comparison, is The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which I did see on a small screen, on the Netflix small screen, like you could see it. And uh, the Coen's began developing the story uh, for TV and then decided to make it into an anthology film, which it, it by itself is a great thing because we don't see enough anthology films. And uh, I said Coen's at the beginning, so obviously they're all great. And I, uh, as you know, Robin, my universal goal for uh, top 10 movies is to find the best Western I saw and put it on the list. Well, look at that. Six yeah. Westerns, no this, waiting. This is four or five of them. This is four or five of the of the best Westerns I saw. Yes, very much so. And uh, I think every one of them works. I don't think any of it doesn't work. Barring the theme and the musical elements, I'm not sure it coheres. And I just said I liked it for being an anthology film, so I'm aware that I'm contradicting myself. <laughs> well, now you know how I felt about Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Robin. Yes. As long as you're sparing me having to contradict you. Right. Well, thank God. Thank God. My number two is Burning, Lee Chang Dong. Uh, this is, uh, an adaptation as you, as I think you might have said, of a Haruki Murakami novel and is, uh, or not, sorry, short story and is kind of a Patricia Highsmith movie as if it's from the point of view of the character who in a Ripley novel would have been cocked on the head by Ripley part of the way through and murdered, but instead uh, is the, a protagonist looking in on the situation kind of from the outside. He's kind of a, a country guy who's trying to get by in the city. And the girl uh, that he knew in high school, who's uh, who's now uh, uh, so cute he doesn't recognize her, she shares an interest in him, and it seems like everything's going great. And then uh, she goes off on a vacation and comes back with her new friend or pal, a rich guy played by Stephen Yun. And as you said, his performance as the... Uh, everything about him suggests uh, that he's uh, the, the worst possible uh, person, but you never really see conclusive evidence. And it's, so it's a an exercise in ambiguity that is uh, thriller subject matter, but uh, not a thriller pacing, but nonetheless quite uh, hypnotic. And the uh, and the uh, conclusion or lack thereof is all part of the design. So it sort of uh, evokes. Uh, not only uh, Highsmith on a literary level, but also kind of 
uh, Antonioni on a film level, except not all boring, completely riveting throughout. So yeah. uh, it is that sort of magic trick of tone and style. That's something like Death of Stalin. You know why it is brilliant every moment. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas Burning is one of those ones where you're not, I'm uh, completely absorbed in this all of the time. And I'm not always entirely sure what's going on to make that happen. And that's part of the sort of mystery of the human heart that lies uh, at the center of, of Burning. So that was a real uh, a revelation and uh, uh, one to definitely uh, make sure you see. And, and, as brilliant as, as Yun is, the other thing is he's not acting in his native language. No. Uh, and he's I mean, not he, playing... he speaks Korean. I yeah. mean, he, he's spoken it from, from a young age, but it's not his first language. It's, it's not his idiomatic language. language. So he right, had to yeah. really work to uh, not, he's not playing a Korean American. He's playing a, a Korean. And uh, now maybe Koreans see that and go, oh, well, his accent is weird. But from the point of view of someone who's reading the subtitles. I, I think Koreans, when they watch that movie, though, this is now the burning hut. Uh, when Koreans watch that movie, even if they see that Americanness about him, that may be part of the sort of indictment of the characters, this cosmopolitan, uh, floating playboy world rich guy that he's uh, got an American accent, not a, a proper soul accent. Maybe that's, it, this even assumes that that's what happens, but that might be part of the intentional casting. Uh, your number two. My number two. Speaking of foreign languages is Cold War by Pavel Pavlikowski. This is a movie that I knew I wanted to see when it uh, hit the Chicago Film Fest and I didn't see it because it was sold out. And I thought, well, that's my chance to see Cold War, except that uh, the Academy Awards did allow this to be nominated for a uh, best foreign language film. And more importantly, they absolutely and a thousand percent correctly nominated Lucas Jal's cinematography for best cinematography because the black and white cinematography in Cold War is like its own movie that is you you could if it weren't for the fact that the movie is so entirely about character and sound as well, you could just watch the cinematography and have had a whole movie. So really it's three movies uh folded into each other. It's a it's a musical story, uh, but it's not a musical. It's about a arranger, composer, pianist who meets and grooms a young uh, Polish girl as a star of socialist folk song troupe. This being 1949 when they uh, meet and uh, in the in the depths of Stalinist tyranny, and he eventually defects in 1951, and the f- film follows both of their lives. From, you know, 49 through, I think, uh, 58 or 60. And it's, it's just an astonishing film on so many levels. I, I think the male actor Thomas Cott is a little reserved, but he's playing sort of an ironic jerk a lot of times. So maybe that's just great acting, but, uh, Joanna Coolidge should be a global superstar, uh, uh, after this movie. She's just, not only is she just riveting to look at in the great superstar movie way, but her acting is terrific. She sings, she dances. She's the original triple threat. It's just an astonishing film. What, and it also just as a throwaway reminds you what rock and roll felt like in addition to everything else it says about communism and love and insecurity and doubt and hatred. And, uh, it, it's just such a powerful, beautiful film. It's like the golden age of Hollywood romance. But it's not an ape. It is a successor. It's an heir to that to that tradition, and it's so amazing and well worth seeing in the big screen if you can. I had a chance to see that last night, uh, but uh, life had other plans for me. Uh, so oh, life! Uh, yes. Those jerks. Life I hate is those a guys. jerk. Uh, well, if there's one lesson of this podcast in any of the huts, it's that life is a jerk. Um, speaking of the uh, inevitable doom that awaits us all. 
my number one uh, was, uh, not for the first time, a Coen Brothers movie, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Woo! Speaking of, am I watching this? Is this happening? Uh, it's very clear that uh, you're watching it and this is what's happening, but... Uh, the, the first, uh, segment uh, alone in its gobsmackingness and the different things that it's combining, uh, with, uh, uh, Tim Blake Nelson's singing cowboy who goes in a completely different direction than you, uh, expect a singing cowboy to go, uh, all the way, uh, to the very end. Uh, it's, uh, it's not a film with the devil in it, but it's definitely a film that has, uh, death in it. Even the, arguably uh, most minor segment, the one with James Franco, has Stephen Root running menacingly toward the camera covered in pots and pans, which is yeah. a masterpiece yeah. right there. That's that's all, all you need from any film. Carter Burwell's score. Uh, yeah, is, that's it. That's so good. It's, it's uh, you know, it's always going to be great. And, and this one, uh, as you say, is the, the thread that ties everything together. The, the Liam Neeson... Uh, uh, roadshow segment is, is just, uh, all of it is, is, uh, uh, startling and, and weird. And you would think that for filmmakers who have such a distinctive style, you would figure, well, that's, yeah, okay, we've seen that. It's played out, but, uh, they, uh, continue to surprise and, uh, doing an anthology film and making it work, uh, is perhaps, uh, the biggest cinematic, uh, surprise at all. So. Uh, the Ballad of Busco Scruggs was the, the one that had my jaw detached uh, from the rest of my head uh, the longest. And I have a pretty good guess what your number one is. Let's see if I'm right. <laughs> oh, do you? Of course you are, Robin. You know me so well. My number one is a film by a guy who I think is really going to do something in, in movies. Deserves to be kept an eye on. A guy named Orson Welles. Uh, the film is The Other Side of the Wind, which went into the literal turnaround hell for uh, 50 years or 40 years and then uh, emerged thanks to a giant pile of Netflix money and a very and a, and a good bit of very hard work by uh, the producers, uh, Philip Frank Marshall and Philip John Rimza and the editor who finished the edit. Uh, about 70% of the edit was uh, needed to still be done based on Wells's notes, uh, Bob Morowski. So those are sort of the unsung heroes of the film. But the real hero of the film is Orson Welles because it is another masterful indictment and celebration of himself at the same time. It is an astonishing piece of work. Even in 1976, it would have just, you know, set off a neutron bomb uh, creatively. And even in 2018, you talk about a movie in which you're, Am I seeing this? Did that just happen? What? Uh, yes, all of that is happening constantly, not just in the sort of art film within a film, the titular other side of the wind, but in the overlapping dialogue, the presentation of all the characters, the pieces of Wells's psyche, uh, John Huston's amazing performances, JJ Hannaford, the larger than life director who is brought low by lesser men, uh, uh, Peter Bogdanovich playing an insulting version of him, of himself. It's, it's an astonishing, uh, a piece of movie on, on all levels. I don't, you know, the, the flaws at some point we'll get Walter Murch to edit and we can have fights about which edit is the best <laughs> one. This is going to be a movie that keeps on giving forever. And as more people watch it and more people internalize it, it is just going to rocket up the rocket up the standings. It's going to be up there with chimes at midnight in the later Wells masterpiece uh, genre. Yes. That's in my alternate world top 10. Yeah. We did a whole segment on it. So uh, if you heard that, you know that I also thought it was fascinating and also the extra textual elements of it in the fact that, it's uh, portraying 
the death of old Hollywood in 1970, and now you're watching it for the first time in 2018. And uh, even a lot of the Young Turks have now uh, uh, passed beyond. Uh, there's there's an, another whole layer about it that exists only because of the uh, its strange production history, and uh, uh, definitely something to check out and make sure that you, if you want to, you can watch the documentary about Wells that is on Netflix to accompany it, but you really have to watch the Netflix documentary that's on YouTube uh, because that's the, the one <laughs> that's that the one that answers you, the actual questions. The you actual have. questions about the film and the the the, the one that's on uh, Netflix uh, is uh, I think a little bit condescending toward uh, toward Wells, uh, which of course was uh, was his curse. But speaking of curses, we're always cursed to run a little long in our top ten segment. So let's uh, escape it as quickly as we can in order to see uh, what lies on the other side of this here commercial. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? It's time to once more wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs. We pause on the landing to wave to the portrait of Madame Blavatsky, but oh, she's still glowering. Well, anyway, uh, we're kind of used to that, so we're going to head on into the Edwardian parlor, where in his smoking jacket awaits the consulting occultist. And uh, he is now going to... Uh, answer a question posed to him by patron backer Gerald Sears, who says, I'm currently running an urban jungle anthropomorphic noir roleplay game set out of New York City circa 1928. The game is moving in an occult direction, and I'm looking for information slash history of the occult criminal and elliptic doings around that time and era. I'm wondering if you can provide any good resources, books, websites, etc. to look up for inspiration. Now, uh, patron backers, when you ask us to help uh, you with your current campaign. We hope that you're running a really long campaign because it's going to take us a while yeah. to get to it. So uh, hopefully this uh, campaign is not long in uh, Gerald's uh, rearview mirror and that some of this will be of help. But for the benefit of everybody who wants to know uh, what exciting and criminal and weird and occult things are going on in New York City, can I see that you have compiled a list as if you have uh, gone out to a bookstore and, and come back with a whole lot of very specialized titles? Uh, so, uh, what's on that list? Uh, well, I mean, to begin with, uh, I would suggest, uh, looking at Harlem Unbound, 
by our, our buddy Chris Spivey, uh, which is about New York City in the 1920s and about weird, horrible mythos doings that are going on and with plenty of noir, uh, to, uh, come tick you off because it is a, uh, Call of Cthulhu slash Trail of Cthulhu supplement and it is well worth diving into. Chris has obviously done a ton of research, knows the, uh, time period and the era, uh, like the back of his hand. The, you know, quality of that is, uh, not to be, uh, neglected. So always find out if someone's already done the research. That's important. And of course, speaking of people who've done great research, Ruth Tillman did a lot of, uh, stuff on New York for Cthulhu Confidential, which is set in the thirties, admittedly, but is still probably pretty relevant to the late 1920s in many ways. So check out, uh, uh, Ruth Tillman's third, the Viv Sinclair part of Cthulhu Confidential because she has uncovered lots of uh, chicanery involving reservoirs and bad actors that uh, will uh, astonish and amaze you, I'm sure. Uh, so next on your list, we come to the criminal part of your book pile, and the first one is Mike Dash, The First Family. Yeah, I mean, the, the criminal New York in 1928 is the period when they're deciding who the five families are going to be. Uh, we are just a little bit away from, uh, I believe it's called the Calamarese War, uh, which is a shootout between two factions of Calamareses, and I think winds up with both of them as part of the five families. The five families gets formalized in 1931, um, and so in the lead-up to that, you have all manner of activity. Dash's story takes you all the way back to the 1890s and 1880s, because he's a great researcher, but that's the sort of thing that you need to lay the fuses for your proper occult and criminal doings in the present, because that's how the Gothic works and certainly how noir works. So I would recommend Mike Dash. Also, he's a terrific researcher. Anything by Mike Dash is great. Uh, another book, David Critchley, The Origin of Organized Crime in America, by which he means New York City because... Uh, well, people mean that kind of thing sometimes. <laughs> if you're in New York City, you know, the rest is a, it's a footnote. <laughs> please. As a Chicagoan, I say please. <laughs> but the or- origin of organized uh, crime in America does talk about New York City and it talks about it in the same era as Dash and it runs down to 1931, down to the creation of the five families. So between those two books, you read the last chapter of each one of them, you're going to have a really good understanding of what's going on. Now, here's where we move from a pile of books to a list of names. Or as we head off into the uh, occult version of this question, and the first name you want to uh, throw in front of uh, Gerald is A.R. Orage. Right. Um, and this is sort of wheeling back around briefly to his question, can you provide any good resources, books, websites to look up? The answer is no. There are never any good books, resources, or websites. Everything has to be uh, mined with your raw and bleeding fingers. <laughs> And so the, the way to do that is... If there were good websites, uh, you'd be out of a job. Right. I would be. So, hurrah. Um, thanks, people, for being lazy and stupid. But you find a code word. And so, for example, when you type occult New York City 1928 and you do your Google fooing well enough, you, you stumble on the Gurdjieff movement, which uh, I think we've talked about Gurdjieff before in our... Uh, Dreamhounds segmenting, but if we haven't, he was an Armenian mystic who uh, uh, had a following of more or less deluded goofs in the West, and one such goof was the British writer A.R. Orridge, who went to New York to found the Gurdjieff school there. Self-actualization through visualization is the basic material of it, but there's also exercises and chanting and, and the rest of that. Orridge also uh, being a literary guy, hung out with a lot of other literary people, including Zora Neale Hurston and Carl Van Vechten. And there is an argument, which I do not believe, that 
he infused into them coded Gurdjieff wisdom such that their later works reproduce Gurdjieff knowledge, possibly without their knowing. So if you're looking for a creepy Svengali of Gurdjieffing, why not pick A.R. Orage? And uh, Gurdjieff himself even came back and said, you're Gurdjieffing all wrong, A.R. Orage. You're fired. <laughs> so you don't even have to get the Gurdjieffians mad at you when you uh, blaggard A.R. Orange. On the other hand, I know nothing against him personally. Maybe he was a fine fellow, but, you know, no one is going to get mad one way or the other. Right. Well, you, you sort of don't want a British guy uh, being an influence on the Harlem Renaissance. <laughs> and you certainly don't want a British guy not being a villain. I mean, yeah. for God's sake, people. It's noir. Similarly, you type in Crowley, New York, 1928. Crowley, of course, left New York uh, and America in 1919. But being Crowley, he left plenty of landmines behind. And one of them was Carl Germer, who was a German uh, ritual magician named Frater Saturnus, who moved to New York City in 1926 and ran the OTO, the Ordo Templi Orientalis, uh, Crowley's Thelemic Order in New York City, until his visa was up in 1935 and we sent him right back to good old Nazi Germany. And the Nazis said, a magician, eh? And threw him in a prison camp, because that's what they do. Yeah, that was a, a little past the uh, cell date for uh, cultists in uh, the Nazi movement. Yes, they're like, we are done with the occult, we have our own, we do not need any more, thank you very much. Carl Germer, we're glad he survived. He got out of his prison camp, came back to America, and continued to run the OTO in America after that. Uh, but in the 20s, he's up to Crowleyan no-goodness and left-hand pathery uh, aplenty in New York City, so... Uh, lots of good possibilities there. And I think there's some uh, some places where uh, Gerald's characters can go. Right. Uh, the Samuel Weiser Bookstore, which eventually became a publishing company of, of great repute and top quality. Uh, but it's right now it's just an occult bookstore in 1928 run by a fresh-faced young fellow named Samuel Weiser. And uh, perhaps he's stooled to the rogue. Perhaps he's the patron who sends you on your missions. Perhaps he's just the NPC you turn to for advice about how to get around the backside of AR Orage. I mean, who can say? Uh, but uh, it's a it's a it's a thing, and it's a thing to think about because in the 1920s, so much of the culture in New York is literary and theater. It's not really a part of culture if it is, doesn't have a literary or theatrical. Uh, expression of it, and that means bookstores are central to the occult in a way that they will not be before or since. And, and so the Wiser Bookstore can act as a symbol or a synecdoche for the whole movement, and you can have as many occult bookstores as you want. You can run a whole Bookhounds of London campaign in New York. Just do more research than Samuel Weiser. Right. And uh, finally, the uh, characters, uh, because of course this is uh, anthropomorphic noir, so I guess this is the player character's chance to go see the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky and see what kind of animal she is in this universe. Right. Uh, what, what kind of animal is Madame Blavatsky on the glowering portrait? I mean, I, I think, uh, I, I think there's a, there's an excellent uh, biography of her called Madame Blavatsky's baboon that I, I'm, I'm afraid has tainted my image of the lovely Madame Blavatsky. Uh, you could make an argument for baboon. You could make an argument for any of your trick writing monkeys, quite frankly, because she was circus people. Um, I think it's a little unkind, uh, to, uh, make fun of her appearance in that way, but I can't look at her and not think baboon. But it's, but it's, it's a furry universe. Making somebody a furry animal is not an insult. It's a pro. the furry universe, she's a very lovely baboon. A very handsome baboon with strong lines. Right. Uh, but anyway, you can go to the United Lodge of Theosophists. Yes. And this, uh, in the fun world of theosophy is a splinter group that follows a different line of descent from Madame Blavatsky than the Theosophical Society that you may be more familiar with, which is centered out on the West Coast. So you've got a East Coast, West Coast rivalry, but instead of with uh, Tupac and Biggie, it's with 
theosophists. So are they throwing down? Are they shooting each other? Are there drive-bys? Are they releasing astral diss tracks? Uh, all of the above, I think. Um, but the ULT is the, is the East Coast side. So, uh, they're the guys where the metempsychotic action is happening. So I guess that, uh, concludes our tour of, uh, criminal, occultist, and, uh, anthropomorphic New York. And, uh, I guess if we've concluded our, uh, final segment, that means we've concluded our podcast. And, uh, we can all go, uh, to our, uh, local diners and, uh, and see what, uh, we, we can hop into a, a furry universe and see what animals our friends are. But at any rate, uh, we'll definitely be back with more of uh, this very kind of nonsense a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Get on our best list by jumping alongside such Patreon backers as... Ruth Tillman. Steve Sigety. Jason Franzella. Jesse Lowe. And Diane Donaldson. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Our latest shirt is You Don't Get Original Theories by Following Basic Logic. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>